Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Good morning. Today is a very special day. I'd like to welcome you to the Surgical Cook Lecture. Before I get started with that, I wanted to just give one announcement. Next week is going to be the Honorary Schwartz Lecture, um, and it's going to be presented by Dr. Ting Tao. Today I'd like to introduce Dr. Campbell. As you know, he is our Division um, Head of Pediatric Surgery. He came to us from medical school at the University of Connecticut, did his residency at UNC, did an ECMO fellowship in Michigan, and then um, did his pediatric surgery fellowship in Arkansas. He joined our faculty in 2006, and since he's been here, he has been a wonder. Um, he has led our trauma program. We are now a level one trauma center, and that's thanks to Dr. Campbell's leadership. And now he is our surgical champion for quality, uh, getting us the surg children's surgical verification, as well as leading NISQIP and everything else. Um, what is also very, very important to know is that he is a wonderful partner and he receives the, the teaching award from the University of Connecticut uh, from the surgical residents almost annually. Anyway, without much to do, I wanted to uh, introduce Dr. Campbell, who will introduce our guest lecturer for today. Good morning, everyone. Um, so this is a special uh, grand rounds for pediatric surgery every year, having the Cook Lecture in honor of Dr. Cook. And we're going to do something a little extra special this morning. So for the past couple of years, we've been working on children's surgery verification. And there are a lot of things that go into this process which create processes of care that allow children access to the, the services that they need doesn't matter what day of the week it is, whether it's at night or uh, on the weekend. But we have a special certificate that we're going to pass off to Jim Schmerling when the patient arrives. Uh, Dr. Ron Cook was the first pediatric surgeon in, uh, in Hartford, Connecticut. So Dr. Cook was born in Rhode Island and moved to Connecticut as a child, uh, went to Yale as an undergraduate and medical school. Started off in pediatrics and had his training at Rochester uh, interrupted by the Second World War. His experiences in World War II led him to change his trajectory, so he completed a surgical residency at Yale and then trained with Dr. Robert Gross at Boston Children's Hospital. And you can see here on this timeline, uh, he was had basically practiced for three decades when a lot of important things happened here uh, in Hartford. The University of Connecticut School of Medicine opened, the pediatric residency opened up shortly thereafter, and when he retired, this lectureship was named in his honor. Here, circa 1998, you can see Dr. Cook, third from the left, Dr. George McGowan and Don Height here with uh, Mark Rowe as the visiting professor that year. So we have a, the privilege this morning of having a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Dan Von Allman here, who's currently the Surgeon-in-Chief at uh, Cincinnati Children's Hospital, holds two other titles there. Uh, I've had the privilege of knowing Dr. Von Allman for quite some time. We intersected in Chapel Hill, North Carolina when I was a chief resident. I don't know I'm quite going back this far, but um, but um, I did go back to um, my, uh, my case logs from, I was able to finagle three months of pediatric surgery as a uh, chief resident, which was really an outstanding experience. 
I did a lot of amazing uh, oncology cases as well as complex congenital cases with him during that time period. And I'm really appreciative for that. And it's wonderful to be able to welcome him back to Hartford. An amazing academic record of uh, more than 130 uh, uh, or more than uh, 80 peer-reviewed publications, more than 30 book chapters on everything from fetal surgery to complex on oncology to congenital surgery. So uh, with no further ado, I'll invite Dr. Von Allman as our 2022 Cook Lecturer. Thank you, Brandon. Um, it's great to be here. I, I really appreciate this opportunity. It's fun to see old friends and, and to meet some new ones. I have to say that picture uh, caught me a bit. I was a little surprised by that, but I will tell you the woman in the picture is still my wife 42 years later. So, uh, so uh, thank you for that. Now it's an incredible honor. You know, Dr. Cook is one of those people who in our profession really uh, helped to establish pediatric surgery as an, an independent uh, surgical specialty. And so this is a great honor for me to be here. And what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about something that I've spent a lot of my career doing and that is pediatric oncology. These are my disclosures. None of them have anything to do with what I'm gonna talk about today. So uh, not to worry there. Um, as Brendan said, I am from Cincinnati now, and I have the great privilege of being the Surgeon-in-Chief there. Uh, this is a picture of our campus, and for those like Dr. Nod who've been there recently, you'll notice there's a brand new building there in the foreground, and that is our brand new 220-bed critical care tower that we just opened a couple of months ago. So an enormous privilege to be there. It's a, it's a wonderful institution. To get to the, to the topic for the day, uh, we all know, and as Dr. Campbell is an expert in, trauma is by far the leading cause of death in pediatric patients. But cancer comes in second and is a, um, is a problem that has uh, persisted, obviously, for, for many, many decades, but we've been making steady progress in the care of patients with pediatric tumors. So I'd like to focus a little bit on how we've made that progress and some of the advances that we've uh, been able to achieve over the last several decades. I always like to start these uh, pediatric oncology, surgical oncology uh, tumors with a picture of this lithograph. Uh, this is a surgeon in Ephraim McDowell. Uh, he, for me, lived right across the river in Kentucky. But in 1809, he performed the first successful abdominal uh, procedure for a tumor, uh, which was prior to the advent of anesthesia. Uh, he resected a 24-pound ovarian tumor from Mrs. Crawford there on the table. Uh, she is an amazingly tough woman. She survived the operation, was able to ride her horse 60 miles back home several weeks later. So uh, just an amazing story of, of the beginnings of pediatric surgical oncology, or not pediatric, but surgical oncology in the United States. Fortunately, we've come a long way from there. And this graph looks at the survival rates for various pediatric tumors. And there's been, this is just from the mid-70s up through the present, and you can see that virtually every line on that graph shows steady improvement over the course of that time frame. So it's been something that we have achieved a tremendous amount. And the mechanism for doing that has really been through cooperative group trials, because much, much as we would like to think as surgeons that we're the most important per people in the group, that actually is not the case. And in fact, it's really been the advent of multimodal therapy that has made these uh, tremendous advances in outcomes possible. For this is Wilms tumor. I know we're all familiar with Wilms tumor. 
described in uh, 1899 by Max Wilms, who described the pathology, and it really is sort of the poster child for multimodal therapy. In the 1930s, surgery alone produced survival rates of only about 30%. With the advent of radiation therapy, survival rates increased to about 40%. And in the 1950s, when chemotherapy came on the scene, the, surgical, or the survival, overall survival for Wilms tumor dramatically improved. And then with the advent of the cooperative groups, uh, there have been steady progress in the survival rate for this tumor that now has around a 90% overall survival rate. But how would you best, if you wanted to design a system for improving survival, how would you do that? We're all academics, and, and how do you do that? Well, you want to do prospective randomized controlled trials. You'd like to have large numbers of patients. You'd like to have well-designed sequential studies that each build on each other. And then you'd like to have this coordinated multimodal approach because of the impact of multimodal care on pediatric tumors. Well, that all sounds great, but the challenge of studying pediatric tumors, as we all know, is that by far the most common tumor, ALL, is there are only 4,000 cases per year in the United States. The solid tumors that uh, the pediatric surgeons tend to deal with, like neuroblastoma and Wilms tumor and hepatoblastoma, are significantly less common. And when you compare this to adult tumors, uh, they basically don't even show up on the bar graph. If you look at the comparison, this is a comparison of ALL with uh, breast cancer and the other tumors with uh, prostate cancer, colon cancer, and lung cancer. So it's very, very difficult. There's no way that an individual center can accumulate enough patients in a short period of time to do an effective study. And that really speaks to the advent of the cooperative group trial system, something that I've been involved with since the uh, late 80s, early 90s. And I'd like to just take a brief minute to talk about that cooperative trial system in the United States. The group trial system started in 1955 when Sidney Farmer and Mary Lasker approached Congress for money to support cancer research. They were given $5 million to start the Chemotherapy National Research Center. Within a several years, there were then 17 groups that were formed, and these then became refined into multimodal therapy groups, and all of them uh, contributed to the improvement in survival that we've seen in all tumors. This is the progression of the cooperative groups in pediatrics. I became involved in the 1990s. There were four groups, the uh, soft tissue sarcoma group, the Wilms tumor group, the pediatric oncology group, and the children's cancer group. In 2000, these were all coalesced at the prompting of the NIH into a single group uh, called the children's oncology group. And this group has been responsible for driving all of the research in cooperative group studies for pediatric oncology. It's a very large uh, organization. They're multi, uh, multidisciplinary in nature uh, with people from not only all over the country, but multiple places across uh, the, the world. There are challenges, though, with cooperative group trials, and anybody who's been involved in establishing one knows this well. They take years to develop, and I would go to the children's oncology group meeting every year, and it felt like we were talking about the same thing. Every single meeting was the same thing over and over again. Surgical questions for pediatric surgeons are rarely, rarely prioritized. They are very complex to run. They take years to carry out. They're all super well-designed prospective 
controlled trials, but they take forever to, to, uh, um, to complete, and then they have to be analyzed and reported, and they are incredibly expensive. However, they do produce really high-quality, meaningful data that shapes our care paradigms. So I'd like to shift now to talk about um, three cancers, the, the ones that uh, impact the pediatric general surgeons the most. One that I've spent a significant amount of my career working on is neuroblastoma, and we'll start there. And the questions really have evolved. The advances have been to not operate at all or to be very aggressive. And that's two obviously very different ends of the spectrum. And understanding where we need to be aggressive and where we should not operate at all has been an important advance in the treatment of neuroblastoma. As we know, stage one uh, neuroblastoma, stage two neuroblastoma, low-risk neuroblastoma has a very high survival rate. And the focus of care recently has been to actually reduce therapy because of the late uh, effects of chemotherapy and the other treatments that we provide. And there was interesting data uh, several decades ago in which mass screening studies were done to try to identify neuroblastoma earlier and with those studies then be able to treat them to help prevent uh, more advanced disease. However, what those studies found, which used urine VMA HVA uh, screening in uh, newborns, was that they diagnosed way more tumors, but they didn't change the overall progression to advanced disease. And the understanding from that was that actually some of the tumors, many of the tumors, actually regress and never progress at all. That information was taken by a colleague of, of ours, uh, Jed Nocturne, at the um, Texas Children's Hospital, and he proposed a study uh, because of the advances in perinatal uh, diagnosis that maybe we should just watch those kids instead of operating on them all. And it's, you know, as a surgeon, it's a great case to take a newborn to the OR and take out a very small adrenal mass. They do great, everything is wonderful, but the question is do you actually need to do that or not? And with Jed's study, the criteria were that they had to be six months or less in age. Often these children are diagnosed prenatally now. And then there were size criteria with a three, uh, three centimeter diameter mass if solid or five centimeters if cystic. And then those masses were identified and the parents approached. And the study schema was that if this mass was identified, parents were actually given the choice of immediate resection or observation. With observation, there's a very set protocol for serial ultrasound and measuring urine catecholamines. And if they remain stable, then the child could just continue to be observed. If the mass demonstrated growth, then they would proceed to resection. The importance of this study was the results. It's an incredible study that's now been expanded to other masses other than adrenal masses. But in this uh, early study from Dr. Nocturne, there were 88 patients enrolled. 84 underwent observation. In four patients, the parents elected to have surgery immediately for the child, and as anticipated, three were low-risk neuroblastomas, and there was one pulmonary sequestration, which is uh, part of the differential diagnosis. Of the, 16, of the 84 who went, uh, underwent observation, 16 ultimately underwent resection. Seven of those were confirmed stage one or low-risk neuroblastoma. As with any clinical study, three, uh, the data was incomplete. Uh, there were two that were higher stage, one 4S, uh, which is now MS, but at that point 4S, and those patients are just observed, and there was one with a 2B tumor that required treatment. There were two adrenal hemorrhages, and interestingly, there were two low-grade adrenal cortical uh, carcinomas, which was very surprising, and uh, that was very hard to explain. 
But the bottom line was that the event-free survival for neuroblastoma was almost 98%. The event-free survival for all tumors was 95%. And most importantly, the overall survival was 100%. And 81% of those patients were spared surgery. And much as I love surgery, there is no such thing as minor surgery, and all surgery has complications. So, so this is a really important study that has really uh, stayed the hand of surgeons from rushing off to the operating room when there's a uh, newborn diagnosed with an adrenal mass. Unfortunately, at the other end of the spectrum with high-risk high neuroblastoma, the outcomes have not been nearly as good, and we've made progress, but not a lot of progress. And this is old data, but looks at three different uh, eras in which uh, tracking the survival for high-grade neuroblastoma, and as you can see, there's not a lot of progress being made. These tumors are frequently the ones that you're, you find as a mass in the abdomen. You get the CT scan, and it looks like the scan on the left there where there's a mass that encases all of the abdominal vasculature, and uh, they respond some to chemotherapy, but oftentimes the vasculature is still encased. And as the picture on the right demonstrates, if you take a lot of time and with great care, you can actually resect these tumors and just skeletonize the vessels in the retroperitoneum. The question is, does that matter? Is there any point in doing that? And that's been a question that has been around for a long time and frankly is still something that's controversial. However, I'd like to talk very briefly about three studies that address that question specifically. First was the German NB97 trial. There were 278 patients enrolled in this trial with stage four high-risk neuroblastoma. As with all of these trials that we're gonna talk about, the question was, does a more aggressive resection result in better survival? And all of the studies had very similar criteria, very slightly different, but basically the same thing. And that is, in this study, for example, 55% had a complete resection, 25% had a greater than 90% resection. And in all of the trials, we'll see that about 70% of patients, it's possible to get a greater than 90% resection. The overall survival for the study showed an event-free survival of 32% and an overall survival of 45%, uh, with a local progression-free survival of 58%. And all of these numbers are very consistent with the outcomes from uh, high-risk neuroblastoma at the time. What they found was that there was no impact. They felt that there was, the data showed no impact on event-free survival, no impact on local progression-free survival, and no impact on overall survival. So with this multivariate analysis, their conclusions were that aggressive surgery is not justified, limited operations decrease the chances for complications, and that there's limited impact, if, on, if any, on outcomes if you are aggressive. So they very strongly promoted do a biopsy, treat the patient, don't be aggressive with surgery. In the children's oncology group, we looked at this, this same question for the A3973 high-risk study that was published a number of years ago. And in that study, it was a very similar approach. We actually stratified the patients as they had been stratified in the German study, but again, combined the top two categories. And of 154 patients were able to have a greater than 90% resection, which again is about 70%. So very similar in terms of the ability to get an aggressive resection done. 66% of the patients had less than 30% or biopsy only. 
This is the Kaplan-Meier of the overall survival, and again, it was very consistent with other studies of high-risk neuroblastoma at the time, with overall survival in the high-risk group at around 40 percent. Effectiveness um, of the completeness of resection was then assessed between um, a greater than 90 percent and less than 90 percent survival. And this is the Kaplan-Meier curve for event-free survival, and you can see that there is a statistically significant difference between those curves with the greater than 90 percent resection in blue showing the higher survival rate. However, overall survival, although the curve on the top is again the greater than 90 percent resection, this was not statistically significant. When it comes to local uh, progression, however, uh, the, the Kaplan-Meier on the, on the left side and the cumulative incidence uh, curve on the right both demonstrate significantly better um, local progression-free outcomes with aggressive surgery. So our conclusions from that were that, the, first of all, the majority of patients, 70, 75 percent, can receive a greater than 90 percent resection and that that correlates with higher rates of local control and better event-free survival. Interestingly, I also took the opportunity to compare what the radiologist said on the post-op reports with what the surgeon said in the operative note, and there was zero correlation, which is a little bit worrisome and makes you, you know, brings into question all of this type of data. Um, but that was a side study that we did uh, as part of this overall study. And then importantly, I think, is this last study. And this study was presented a number of years ago at a neuroblastoma meeting in Germany, but has just recently been written up. And I think it's important because of its size. And again, this study has very similar criteria, a complete excision or 95 percent as opposed to 90 percent. And I, as I just said, that doesn't really mean much when you actually look at what people do. Um, but there's 76 percent of their cohort was able to achieve a greater than 95 percent resection. The importance of this study was the size, as I mentioned. There were 1,324 operative sets evaluated. Mortality was 0.5 percent, morbidity was 10 percent, and I would say that morbidity in all of these studies ranged anywhere from 10 percent to 30 percent. For the data, uh, when we looked at overall survival, uh, overall survival was again 38 percent for event-free survival and 44 percent for overall survival, so very consistent with the other two studies. So the patient populations, I think, are very comparable. However, as with our study in the COG, the event-free survival was significantly improved with 38 percent with a complete excision versus 27 percent with a lesser, um, uh, a lesser excision. More importantly, this is the first study that actually demonstrated an improvement in overall survival, uh, 44 percent versus 36 percent, and this was statistically significant. And I think that the reason for this uh, relates strongly to the fact that it was such a large data set that they could actually prove that there was a statistically significant difference in overall survival. So the conclusions from this study are that you should be aggressive surgically when it's technically possible, that the majority of uh, patients can receive a greater than 95 percent resection, and that results in an improved event-free survival, uh, cumulative incidence of local recurrence, and overall survival. So uh, I, I'm biased in my approach because I uh, participated in some of these studies, but my, my approach to neuroblastoma in high-risk patients is to be very aggressive with the resections. 
I'd like to switch now and go back to neuroblastoma for a moment and just talk about one aspect of neuroblastoma, and that is stage five neuroblastomas, uh, which are the kids who have bilateral tumors, because this is another area where there's been a significant change in our approach over the last several decades. The incidence of bilateral Wilms tumor synchronous is about 7% and metachronous about 2%, and the mean age, as you see there, Importantly, uh, up until 1980 or so, the approach was that when the patient presented, the surgeons would take the patient to the OR and do a nephrectomy on the side with the dominant mass, and then the patient would undergo post-op chemotherapy with attempted salvage of the kidney uh, with the residual tumor. The problem with that is that there was a very high incidence of renal failure, synchronous uh, 9 percent and metachronous almost 20 percent. So that approach changed where patients then underwent bilateral renal biopsy, underwent neoadjuvant chemotherapy, followed by nephron-sparing surgery on whichever side uh, it was possible or both sides. And that was because of the realization that sometimes the big tumors that would have been resected with the kidney previously actually responded best to the chemotherapy. And using this approach, nephrectomy was avoided in 50 percent of the cases. Uh, in the nitwits uh, two and three studies. The problem with biopsy is that, uh, as we know, when you do a biopsy, it actually spills some tumor. It can be inaccurate, and because of the tumor spill and the complication rate, it changes the therapy that a patient has to get in that they then require uh, flank radiation. So currently, what we do is the approach that's been taken in Europe, which is that the diagnosis is made based on imaging. Patients then receive neoadjuvant chemotherapy without a tissue diagnosis for 6 to 12 weeks, and then undergo nephron-sparing surgery on both sides. Uh, this is the nephron-sparing surgery can be, it's great if the tumor is in one pole or the other. That makes it a lot easier. You can do tumor enucleation, and this is where ultrasound, uh, intraoperative ultrasound is helpful, or you can even do percutaneous ablation. This is just an example of a CT scan uh, that shows this uh, posterior tumor nodule uh, in the apex of the kidney on the left. This is what it looks like in the operating room. It's relatively straightforward to wedge out that part of the kidney. If you get into the calyces, they're just closed and a drain is placed. Uh, this is what it looks like after the tumor nodule is resected. And then uh, we, we put a, um, a gel on the kidney to help uh, control hemostasis, and you can put sutures in the capsule to close it. So again, the advance in, in uh, Wilms tumor has been the approach to bilateral uh, tumors where we have done um, made a significant improvement in the risk for renal failure based on uh, keeping as much viable uh, tumor, as much viable kidney as possible throughout the process. Lastly, I'd like to just uh, look at hepatoblastoma, the other major solid tumor that we are often faced with in pediatric surgery. And the advance here has really been the advent of using liver transplant as a modality for the treatment of hepatoblastoma patients. Greg Tiao, who is one of our faculty members, is leading an international study called the FIT study. Uh, in that study, they are looking at the use of transplant, among other things, for the treatment of hepatoblastoma. This is one schema from that study and shows that 
if, uh, if you're able to treat the patient with neoadjuvant chemotherapy and clear whatever metastatic disease there is, then those patients are candidates for uh, liver transplant just based on treatment with chemotherapy. This uh, second schema actually demonstrates patients who don't clear with chemotherapy can be treated with pulmonary metastectomy. And there are a number of techniques, which I'll show you in a second, that have helped with identifying pulmonary masses uh, so, that those, so that those patients can be rendered tumor-free and then be candidates for orthotopic liver transplant. We have been um, using a lot of ICG, which is a fluorescent dye. It can be injected into the patient prior to surgery, and that dye is preferentially taken up in liver tissue, I'm sorry, in tumor tissue. So uh, using a special light in the operating room, and these pictures show a tumor nodule uh, after administration of indocyanine green uh, in the lung. So this is a lung met, and our surgeons have used that to help them identify as many lung mets as possible and have actually been very successful in finding uh, lung mets that otherwise would have been missed but are identified because of the indocyanine green. It's also helpful in identifying and localizing the extent of tumor in the liver uh, for aggressive liver resections. So this, these pictures demonstrate the indocyanine green being used in a uh, tumor mass in the right lobe of the liver. The experience we've had in Cincinnati has been that we've done 41 liver transplants with hepatoblastoma as the primary diagnosis. The results have been excellent with 89% alive, um, only seven deaths. In those seven deaths, most were due to recurrent tumor, five of the seven. Uh, one died due to a cardiac arrest, one from a secondary uh, malignancy. There was one graft failure that required a retransplant, and interestingly, six of these patients had multi-organ transplants, so they required uh, more than just having a liver uh, transplant. And finally, I'd like to finish just by talking a little bit about the future. Um, I'm particularly interested in, in, uh, in toys and technology, and uh, the robot, the Da Vinci robot, is currently the one that's FDA approved. The, the, offers potentially substantial uh, advantages in treating uh, tumors, given the fact that because there is a computer placed between the surgeon and the patient, there's the opportunity that you might, uh, that you might be able to do uh, enhanced surgery by overlaying imaging and other sorts of things. And in our hospital, we have a laboratory, which is the picture on the, on the left down there, uh, we have a laboratory with inter interventional radiology type equipment for a, from a hybrid OR uh, that we've been using to develop procedures where we use both uh, imaging and uh, video simultaneously to help us identify margins and tumor nodules and such with uh, localization. The advantage uh, we have, which is very fortunate, is that we have exactly the same equipment in the operating room in our hybrid OR, so we're able to translate procedures that are developed in the lab directly to the operating room. And probably the most common one that we have used is uh, using a hybrid approach to doing lung nodule localization. Typically in our institution, what that required in the past was that the patient went down to radiology, underwent anesthesia, had a localization wire placed, was then transported under anesthesia back to the operating room, repositioned in the operating room, and then the um, lung nodule would be removed. 
more than several times, you would look in there and see that the wire had pulled out or the patient's position had changed. And um, doing it this way, we were able, using this equipment in the hybrid OR, you can do a cone beam CT in the operating room with the patient on, in the position uh, for which the resection will be done. The wire is then placed by our interventional radiology and then immediately resected uh, using uh, minimally invasive techniques. So these are the kinds of things that we hope to um, pursue more in the future as we become more adept at this kind of intervention. And there's lots of possibilities, and we still have lots, lots to do in terms of uh, getting better. Uh, but this is just a, a short review of some of the things, some of the advances we've made over the last several decades. So again, I would like to thank you all incredibly for this wonders, wonderful honor uh, to be part of this lecture series. And uh, it's been great to be here and, and see some old friends. So Dr. Campbell, I think you have another presentation to go. So I will, uh, I will let you proceed with that. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Dan. All right, so we're, uh, we're, we're very uh, privileged to have uh, a guest with us this morning who we're going to have come up here in just a minute. So I'll just cut back briefly to children's surgery verification. So this is a program put together by the American College of Surgeons that puts in place uh, a whole bunch of standards that allow you to provide the highest uh, quality care possible to uh, to children in the state of Connecticut. And this past fall, through the hard work of a lot of um, individuals at our institution, perhaps uh, no one more than uh, Jennifer D'Amato and Tina Sacco, who are, are two of the, the members of our surgical quality team, have uh, put together this program. The American College of Surgeons came and verified uh, Connecticut Children's as a level one children's surgery center. Uh, we are now one of only two uh, hospitals in New England uh, with this uh, distinction. Uh, and uh, the distinction is great, but the important thing is patients like Isaiah who are here have an opportunity to benefit from uh, immediate availability of operating rooms and both uh, medical and surgical specialists who can provide uh, the care that you need uh, when you need it. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite uh, Isaiah up. Uh, I'm going to give him our uh, three-year certificate, uh, uh, three-year certificate of verification. And Dan, we'll bring you up since I don't think uh, Jim Schmerling is here. We'll have is he on his way? All right. Well, uh, Jim Schmerling is going to be here to receive that in a in a moment. But what we might be able to do should we do a few questions while we're waiting yeah, for awesome. for Jim? So I'm going to we'll keep you up here, Isaiah, and. Uh, We'll, uh, uh, we're just going to have, uh, have a couple of questions from uh, the uh, audience uh, while we're waiting. So guys, uh, you can open up and type your questions in the Q&A section. So I have a question. Um, my question is, is um, have you been able to use your hybrid technology for any of the Wilms tumor resections? Um, because I know it's very controversial to think about doing laparoscopic nephrectomies um, in Wilms. And sometimes the hybrid technology, especially with uh, imaging, can help minimally invasively with tumor resection. Are you embarking upon that at all at Cincinnati? We, we have done a few. The honest answer is we have not been big fans of, of minimally invasive approaches to most tumor. Mm -hmm. okay, I mean, it's one thing to resect lung nodules, but to resect a primary tumor. So 
for example, neuroblastoma, unless it's an isolated uh, um, adrenal lesion, it's, I personally, and I'm old school, but I personally think it's a cancer operation and should be done uh, in the safest, most complete manner. The hybrid has been great, and we're still trying to figure out how, um, how to leverage those capabilities best in the operating room. But even in open cases, so one of the things for people who have done complex uh, neuroblastomas in the retroperitoneum, you can spend forever looking for the renal artery, for example, to preserve the kidney, which is one of the tenets of surgical approaches to neuroblastoma. And it's kind of dumb, right? Because I can call one of our interventional radiologists. We have an ultrasound machine in there, and he looks at it and goes, it's right there. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, okay, that helped save me a significant amount of time. Right. So we have used it. We're still honestly exploring the best uses for it. We go around to all of the divisions and ask them, what could you possibly use this technology for to make your care better? Um, but that's a great okay. question. Yeah, because we're in the process of building our own hybrid right now. And we do have a DaVinci, the XI. My other question is, is have you found any benefit in sarcomas? Um, I know Dr. Campbell had a long case yesterday um, with tumor nodules in the ICG uh, dye. I don't know. Dr. Uh, Roshni Dasgupta is our, is our sarcoma surgeon, and she's done a lot of work on sentinel nodes and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I honestly don't. She's used it for um, localizing lo lung nodules. My right. recollection is that sarcomas don't pick up the ICG as well as right. uh, Wilms tumor or hepatoblastoma, but I'm not the expert on that. We do have a recent um, patient of mine that had uh, numerous thoracotomies for lung nodules for sarcoma, um, a Ewing sarcoma, and we've um, transferred some of her care over to interventional radiology because they can do um, targeted image-based alcohol therapy to the, and do the ablation that way just because the repeat thoracotomies were getting too difficult and she didn't have a lot of lung left. Um, that seems to have uh, given us some time with her, too. Have you been um, using that at all? With we do. We, we do a lot of that for uh, liver nodules with uh, RFA therapy, and mm -hmm. we have not used alcohol injections, but um, we have a wonderful relationship with our interventional radiologists. I always tell the fellow applicants that they're actually like members of our department. Um, and so being able to, um, to take advantage of their expertise for those kinds of cases is very helpful for the patient. But it's also great to build that relationship that we then use in the, intervention, in the hybrid operating room working together. And the whole concept right. of that is to leverage the expertise of the radiologist and the surgeon to bring those skill sets together for the benefit of the patient. Right. We have a fantastic radiology department, and Dr. Moot in particular, um, it's not uncommon that he gets an emergency page up to the operating room to come help us. Um, I don't know if he's on right now, but uh, I'm sure he's chuckling. Um, Same. We're actually yeah. lucky that our, our um, interventional radiology suite is in the operating oh, room. Oh, that's good. So it's, it's somebody go down the hall and <laughs> yeah, get Dr. Crap. Johnson. And... Um, Dr. Zelneritis, thank you for your question. His question is, how confident are you with the randomization of the studies cited such that there is not significant randomization bias? He says at least one of the studies had parental decision to participate or not. That was Dr. Nocturne's study. Yeah, in the, in the neuroblastoma studies, the high-risk studies, I'm very confident in the randomization because those are part of the children's oncology, at least the study that we wrote up was part of the children's oncology group, and there is a very, very intense process for getting those protocols approved and a lot of oversight to make sure that they're done appropriately. The, the parental um, decision study is interesting of Dr. Nocturne's study um, for the observation, and um, I am not a, a, a 
a statistician, so I won't comment on it, but my understanding is that it is very statistically valid. Um, and that actual randomization scheme we, we used recently in one of our uh, Midwest Pediatric Surgery Consortium studies looking at appendicitis where it was actually up to the, up to the parents whether they had um, uh, medical therapy or surgical therapy for their appendicitis. So it is a valid statistical approach. So thanks Thank everybody you. very much. Uh, we had uh, well over 100 uh, participants in uh, Grand Rounds this morning and I hope everybody has a good day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at ConnecticutChildrens.org slash podcast slash grand dash rounds.